Everybody, how's it going? Doing good. Where are you, Joe? You look much better. Oh, now. Oh, yeah, there. Flash of reality. God, okay, whatever. How you doing, Nico? Good. How you guys doing? Hanging in there, man. Hanging in there. Looks like uh, the weather's, uh, yeah, it's been yucky, man. We've been getting a lot of high winds over here. How about you, uh, Joe, or uh, Nico? I know, Joe, I know Joe's getting wind, but how about you, Nico? Yeah, it's been super windy. Yeah. Cold and windy. Yeah, we uh, had a short thunderstorm yesterday, but yeah, we were getting some high winds, 50, 60 miles per hour. I shouldn't really say high winds when many parts of the, you know, southern states here are getting hit with hurricane winds. So it's all relative, you know, compared to uh, other places. But uh, yeah, I hope everybody's week was, was going well. Tony played counselor this week and will probably continue to play counselor. Uh, so that's always stressful for me, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, that music, that intro, Jerry Sigler, you know, I should tell everybody, you know, Jerry's originally from Cleveland. Now Jerry's in his early eighties now, but back in the, uh, you know, I, right when he's probably a senior or just maybe just got out of high school, uh, he would take um, the Greyhound from Cleveland to Chicago once a month to train with the legendary uh jazz accordionist named Leon Sash, who actually lived in Skokie. So how Jerry got from the bus station to Leon's house, I never bother asking its details, but uh, yeah, he would go like once a month, get his lesson, go home, back to Cleveland, practice, and then eventually he moved to Chicago. And uh, knew another friend of ours, who actually was a friend of Jerry's that I met. Um, he passed away, Sammy Caparo, another great jazz accordionist who trained with everybody very much, but he would fly once a month to um, Hollywood, California. So I'm assuming LA and uh, fly in study with a, a, another legend, uh, Tommy Gamina. And if there's any musicians out there, Tommy Gamina ended up becoming the inventor and president of uh, polytone amplifiers, which a lot of jazz bassists, guitarists, of course, accordionists would use. And Sam really, you know, they would have their one hour lesson or whatever, and then leave. There was no like, Hey, let me buy you a drink or let's go out for dinner. Nothing. So he would literally fly in and fly out. Um, so this distance learning thing is not a new concept. I guess that's been going on for probably a long time in, in the world. And that it's, it's not limited to just martial arts or probably not even limited to just music. But when you want to seek out somebody to train, you know, I give Jerry credit because, like I said, he was a kid still, just taking a Greyhound. And it's a long, uh, probably eight or nine hours by Greyhound to Cleveland, from Cleveland to Chicago. I've never done it, but, uh, yeah. Um, 
takes some dedication. Well, that's what it is. Just like with the Tri-C program, you know, this, this distance learning, it's actually far easier now because you have the videos that you can do pretty much instantaneously. You don't even really have to come to Chicago uh, or wherever, you know, um, and especially with the COVID and things are ramping up again, uh, you know, people may not be able to get out. So it's, it's imperative. I keep saying, I'm going to send out a mass email, you know, telling people come on and sign up, but I never get around to it, but I, I need to do that. It's just so much other things going on around here. And, um, so now I'm on pins and needles because of my car issues. I got it once again, here we go. I got to figure out what's going on with the car. Um, so yeah, I got a couple emails this week, just, you know, positive comments about the uh, podcast saying one, one in particular, uh, Dustin wrote, uh, from Canada, uh, that he likes the real world experience that I, you know, that I was talking about last week with, the with the knife fighting. And, you know, of course it's anecdotal cause it's my experience, but it's important, you know, and I was telling somebody that it's like talking about medicine, you know, medicine is such a broad subject with the different types of diseases and illnesses and injuries. It's not humanly possible for even the world's greatest doctor to cover every single thing. And that's how it is with street fighting. You know, there's so many variables, so many different scenarios that can happen that it's, you know, sometimes difficult to speculate. And that's why I like to just stick to the facts as they were that things that happened to me or, or perhaps things that I witnessed or Nico, what things that happened to you or Joe, Joe, what things that things that happened to you. And, you know, um, and then from there, you can kind of extrapolate out uh, kind of like a musician who takes, you know, make, takes a, a known song and uh, puts their own, uh, you know, arrangement to it. And um, it's good to play with, you know, and I hope the guys that were watching this video last week, you did the lesson about um, observation and, and looking around and seeing things. Uh, it's a great exercise for your mind. Um, and, uh, it, it becomes easier and quicker as, as time goes on and you start to become a student. It's like anything else, you know, it's like music. Once you start really knowing music, I mean, really, really learning it, the theory minor sevenths, let's say flat five or a 13th chord or something, you start to hear that. And then you can listen to songs, you know, different artists, and, you know, even if you don't have perfect pitch, you may not know exactly what key they're in, but you'll have what's called relative pitch. You'll be able to, oh, that's a minor six chord or that's a sus chord or whatever. Um, same with this. You know, it's all principles. Using your, using your instead of ear, um, you're using your, your eyesight to correlate uh, things. And, you know, it's a process. So did your uh, family leave yet, Joe? I'm just here with Ben, yeah, so. We're just uh, still trying to figure out how to feed ourselves and take care of basic things that were taking care of us before. We're subsisting off of mostly cereal at this point. At some point, we'll figure out how to turn on the stove. Do you have enough kitty litter for you guys? Okay, you know, because I'm sure you didn't get toilet paper. Oh, wait, you're supposed to. I thought that was what the yard was for. I'm confused. See, the dog used the yard. I'm trying to use, like you said, use observation. So I, I pay attention to how other things are doing. And I generalize from there. So, but you're right. Maybe sometimes I need to think outside of the, uh, the yard, so to speak. I actually think, no, you need to be held for observation, but that's just my opinion. What's up with you, Nico? Oh, not too much, man. 
who's been working in this cold weather. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're working, man. That's the main thing. You know, it keeps you financially sound and it keeps you mentally occupied. It's a good thing. Yeah. The shutdown could be coming. We don't know what's going to happen Monday, right? If uh, the governor's going to further restrict things at this point. Well, now, okay, so I go to this Illinois website, and it lags like three or four days, but it gives you the, the running tab. Now, the other day, like maybe on Monday or Tuesday when I looked, the latest was that my county was up to 28.5% positivity rate. And yesterday I looked, and it updated to the 10th, and the positivity rate went down, but it was still 179 which is way out of hand. Um, and someone else, again, at my mom's daycare, this time a patient at the daycare tested positive this week on uh, Tuesday. So it's out there. It's dangerous. Um, you know, it's, yeah, you know, this has been all predicted, you know, the experts all said, we're going to have a, you know, another go around come, you know, I think they almost hit the nail on the head. I think they said November, December, you know, here we are. And, you know, boy, you know, you don't know what to expect. Um, I've been kind of busy with other things, but I know one state, I believe it's maybe New, New Mexico has a mask mandate or something. I don't, I don't remember what state cause I, my, my mind, you know, was, was kind of doing other things when I saw it. Um, but yeah, it's, I saw something on the news too, Nico, about Indiana, some County, um, up there on the border, the, uh, the one that borders Illinois up there. Um, was, it, was it Lake County? Yeah, I think it was Lake County. They're, they're cracking down because it's getting out of hand up there. It started midnight la or started last night. Probably, I think probably midnight. Cause yeah, it was about 10 o'clock when I had the news on and it said in two hours, you know, this goes into effect. So. They're, oh, so, so they're locking down Lake County. I haven't heard about it yet. Don't don't. Well, the term lockdown can be kind of ominous, there's restrictions put in, um, you know, and I don't mean it. I don't think it meant complete total. You, you know, it was more or less a uh, um, percentage, you know, 20% of people, you know, occupancy or this or that, whatever you did, you should look into that because you know, it may affect you uh, more than it would affect us, you know? Um, but, well, uh, I'm, I'm considered essential worker. So a lot of those things don't apply to me. Well, no, I just meant for you casually, you know, if you were planning on going getting something to eat or something, who knows? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I know Chicago shut down the restaurant, so Indiana's probably going to follow. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, and I think Joe's alluding to the fact that there may be more lockdowns coming. I know Mara Lightfoot was pretty adamant about not, um, you know, even privately congregating in large crowds. You know, they just got to snuff this out you know, uh, as best they can, but I don't know, you know, again, it's just a tough, tough period. But um, I mentioned to you guys, I don't know if you saw the email, uh, Nico, about um, discussing, discussing uh, head movement and things. And it's kind of, we don't need to discuss it in depth, but you know, everybody who trains with me knows that when it comes to my stand-up, I want people to be moving and not being a stationary target. And not all boxing trainers are like that, uh, believe it or not. Um, one of the 
I don't want to use the term drawbacks because I don't think it's a drawback, but is, you know, when the more you move around, the more, you know, it takes better conditioning, but that's part of it. You don't want to ever be a stationary target. Uh, You want to be elusive. You want to be hard to hit and it really works your reflexes and it works your body control. And sadly, part of the thing, when you get older as a fighter, no matter what, um, you, uh, you start to lose your reflexes. That's one of the first things that goes, you know, uh, you know what to do, but your body just doesn't react quick enough and that can cause chaos. And, you know, I have my theories on things, um, you know, and I don't know if anybody wants to get into it, but it just was, you know, 30 years ago, let's say, you know, boxers were shot pretty much by their, with the, you know, notable exceptions, but pretty much shot by the time they were in their mid thirties, maybe late thirties. Now they go a little bit longer. I, I feel that that has a lot to do with the level of competition, but besides that, to me, head movement, <clears throat> learning about angles is like really important. So one of the first things that like when people join my Tri-C program or even at when we used to have the gyms is, uh, you know, movement, you know, make sure you're moving, make sure you're not squared up to the target uh, uh, unless you're doing like, you know, body shots or whatever, but generally just a lot of movement. Don't keep your head there. Uh, And it's kind of funny how, you know, especially a lot of guys who are either beginners or intermediate or just didn't have the, uh, the, a trainer that, that emphasizes head movement, you know, they'll throw punches and they, you know, a really good fighter can slip, parry, block, what have you move. And if, if you don't move that head, they're always going to know where it's going to be. Okay. It's just simple physics. You know, they're going to follow your, your arm. They're going to know where your head's going to be and they can launch an attack. Whereas if you get, used to this movement and all this different up and down, left, right, in, out, um, circle, circle, you know, they may, they, if they land, it may just be a glancing blow, but, um, it's, and it's very frustrating for the opponent to miss. It takes a lot of energy, more energy when you miss a punch than when you land it. So it, 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 it has a lot of uh, benefit, not just so you don't get hit solidly, solidly, but you mess with your opponent psychologically as well as physically. And the one thing you want is you, you want your opponent to miss. And therefore, once he misses, you can counter that miss because he's going to leave himself open. And um, especially when you're talking in a street fight, when you're going up against somebody who's, you know, obviously not a, hopefully not a world-class boxer or striker uh you can end the match the fight the uh situation quickly you know by moving you know and waiting for him to come to you and then pop him you know with with your setups and make it quick um so that's really i mean it's kind of hard to go in depth i just wanted to discuss that and we can move on to something else but you know you can't we can't really demonstrate it but I do on some of my videos, uh, t- you know, taking it to the feed and you know, fundamental f- foundations of footwork and probably even the foundations of the jab, I'm sure, because I jab and move off the jab. Um, and that's something you can practice shadow boxing. You can practice it if you have a heavy bag. 
Obviously, you can practice it sparring. Many times boxers would practice nothing but head movement. Um, and, you know, they would get a, a, a sparring partner in there and they would not counter their, their sparring partner at all. Uh, and they would just have the sparring partner throw punches and they would just work on head movement and, you know, just being elusive. And that works well because you can get a mismatch sparring partner, meaning you can get a guy who's like four or five skill levels below you. You know, you, a lot of times they're not going to step in the ring with you because they don't want to actually spar. They don't want to get hit. So um, it works out well when you can get a, a, a guy that's, you know, doesn't have to be at your level um, just throwing those punches at you and knowing they they will know that you're not going to, counter them so um works well so that's something that i think everybody should um uh, incorporate even as a warm-up when you're shadow boxing or whatever or you know even shadow wrestling but really for the shadow boxing just moving that head and i don't mean like this i mean just moving your body you know get your body moving you know and it do- and it does not have to be big movements 10 12 inches uh-uh small movements so you can um get out of the way you know and still be there to counter okay it doesn't do you any good to jump back two feet because now you can't counter the guy generally speaking uh so now joe how how uh okay i know you you were talking about you going into college twice a week should be winding down now right how many more weeks do you have four or five I've got four more. Actually, I, I still want to keep talking head movement if that's cool, because I, I I think that's kind of huge, and I do have some uh, questions, and I'll jump back. Onto well, the go college. ahead. We'll go stick with the head movement. Go ahead. Yeah, and I think because I think one of the things I learned training from you that I really didn't put it together. I think, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there because you know I've done some, you know, obviously looking on YouTube and some of my training prior, um, because we're a lot of people think head movement is literally just kind of the, the defensive reacting to a punch. So if I'm, you know, slipping a jab or a cross, or if I'm duck bobbing and weaving with someone's throwing hooks, but what you emphasize to me and correct me if I'm wrong, but even if I'm, even if I'm not exchanging punches, I am moving kind of erratically. My head should not be, you know, like you said, not stationary. So there is constant kind of erratic mo- motion. Uh, so they can't get a bead on me. And that's something that to me was never emphasized prior. I mean, they kind of said head movement, but I think it gets, I think part of head movement, obviously is slipping punches as they happen. So reactively and ducking and bobbing, weaving, but you're also just kind of talking, you're moving whether or not you see something or respond to it. Proactively. Yeah. Because part of it is you never allow your opponent to get set. Okay. Um, And I don't know if there's ever been any scientific tests on how much more energy it takes, but it shouldn't take that much more energy. Okay. I mean, it, it really shouldn't. Um, and certainly if we're talking about a street fight, you should be in enough condition to be able to do that. I mean, you know, street fights, not going to go 12 rounds. Um, yeah. You, you, you want to get into the habit of that and you don't want to be a pitfall that a lot of guys do. Uh, they do head movement in a pattern in a rhythm, you know, like maybe jab. And then let's just say, you know, we'll just stick with the jab for a minute, jab it and move off to the right or something like that, whatever they, they fight in patterns and that's no good. 
you know, like I've talked about other aspects of your life, you have to be systematically unsystematic because uh, a very keen opponent, or if, if this is a sporting match, their corner can pick it out if, if, if their corner men are smart enough or if they've done, um, you know, research on you, they'll, they'll know the patterns that you, that you use and they can set you up and then easily counter you. So, yeah, you can use head movement as an offensive weapon or as a proactive thing to not only not let your opponent get set, but fluster him enough or bait him, you know, bait him a little bit, and you'll see how he bites. Some guys bite with a jab or a cross or, you know, whatever they, they you know, do. And you'll, you'll figure that out. Um, so, yeah, it's really an important thing. And I, I think, once again, it's more – it's it shouldn't be an advanced technique. It should be something I believe is taught, you know, right from the get-go. That's what I try to do. So you're, you're used to that. Um, and, yeah, it makes a big difference uh, to me, you know. And, and it's also a safety factor. You know, you don't want to be one of these guys that stand toe-to-toes. Talking to somebody yesterday about this, I get I, – I could take a good punch and, oh, that's great. No, it's not great. Like if you're a boxer – you know, the, the, so sport, you know, getting hit because you can take a punch, you know, that's going to cause you a lot more damage down the line, you know, uh, with your head um, because you don't get knocked out. Sometimes it's probably more uh, uh, kind. If you just did, did have a glass jaw, you get knocked out, boom, you know, you may not have a great career, but you might have your brains 20 years later. So yeah, it's really important to, um, you know, especially guys who don't hit hard. You, you know, maybe you're a soft puncher. You're not going to have that one-punch knockout ability to take your opponent out of the fight. You have to make – maybe you'll have to win on points. Um, you know, so you don't want to get a lot of abuse, right? And you want to salvage your body as much as you can. Head movement is very important. Now, there's a story. I, I don't know if it's mythic or if it really happened, but Willie Pep won a round without ever throwing a punch. That's the story. That's the story that's been going around since whatever he did it, the 40s or the 50s, that particular fight. And he allegedly called it. He said, I'm going to win around without throwing a punch because he was just so slick defensively. Boom, you know. Now, Willie did have cognizant problems later in life, but Willie Pep also had 230 pro fights, something like that. It was an incredible amount of pro fights, maybe 240. Um so, you know, the law of averages, you're going to get, you're going to take punches through that. So imagine if somebody with that kind of defensive skills as a Willie Pep only had 30 or 40 or 50 fights, like some modern boxers do, many modern boxers. He may have come out of that relatively unscathed from a uh, CTE uh, standpoint. But yeah, Joe, you're right. Um it should, that's why I, I tell people when you're doing your shadow boxing uh, and I want like the distance guys now, you know, when they, I want them to video it and send it to me. I want to see that. I want to see that, that good movement. And I, and I look for things. Do you move and drop your hands? Do you cross your feet up? Do you move in, in, like I say, in predictive patterns and you don't want that. Okay. Do you want to be creative? And to use a musical analogy, you have an octave, let's say, 12 notes in a chromatic scale. 
And you can make melodies. Many thousands and thousands of melodies have been written through the years, maybe millions. And, you know, all using the 12 notes of a chromatic scale. And not all these songs sound alike. So think of all the angles that you can create with your body. They're going to be more than 12, okay? You know, because you have degrees of angles. And it's more than just left, right, up, down, you know. But even if you just factored in that, in, out, left, right, up, down, okay, what's that? That's six, and then you can start dissecting like a clock. So even if you had 12 ways, you can still hit those, hit that in a tremendous amount of variation. And, um, and even if you do start to repeat yourself down the line, you, it's not like it's a continual re- repetition. So, yeah, it's just something to work on. Tony, do you recommend any other type of drills for doing head movement? I mean, aside from the shadow boxing and, um, you know, sparring with one guy, just throwing well, strikes. Maze ball, or if you don't have access to that, you know, get like a tack or something and put a string and with a ball, wrap it on there, you know, like a tennis ball or something, just move it so it's coming in and you learn how to move out of the way, you know, and you could easily, um, you know, look on YouTube for, for examples of how to, how, how to work a maze ball. But you, the key is you want, you want that tight, that movement. You don't want to, you don't want to start doing that kind of stuff. You know, you don't want to do that. Uh, you want a little, little movement like that. Remember just all you're trying to do is avoid the guy's fist at this point. Don't even worry about elbows yet. Just worry about moving the guy's fist. So like what I did, what I do and what I recommend is like, let's say you have a mirror um, and you have a piece of tape that could equate to the guy's fist. So you, you look at, you look at the fist and let's say this fist covers half my face. Okay. My fist would cover half my face. So you put a piece of tape, you stand at a distance on that mirror. So like half of your face would be covered, let's say, and then you just practice the movement. So you see how much movement it would take. So that tape, which is supposed to be the fist, uh, gets avoided. You're going to find out it doesn't take that much. You don't need this. You know, I demonstrate this in some of my videos. You just need enough so that, so that punch goes past your head. And then knowing that, getting back to Joe's thing about doing it before a guy punches, well, as long as you know that, how much you need to move, you know it's not much. Because the last thing you – you don't ever want to put yourself out of position. You don't want to lose your balance, first and foremost. You always have to have your balance. It's not worth risking all this fancy stuff if it's going to hurt you down the line somewhere else. So you have to keep your hips and legs under you. Uh, you don't want your head to go too forward where you're off balance. So balance is really important. And you have to always be in a position to quickly counter. Okay. And so let's say I do this movement, you know, and it, and it draws something. I'm offensive now. So I'm moving before you even throw a punch. I'm trying to get you to bait. I'm trying to bait you to get you to throw that punch. I mean, slip, block, whatever. But now I, I can counter at the same time. And knowing that I can use my head movement to, you know, you, you bought my head. I faked you out. You bought my head fake. Even if your punch would land, I already know it's not going to mean anything. Well, I can focus now. I have 
if we're staying strict with boxing, I have my two hands now that I can counter you with. Okay, I don't have to tie one up, one of my hands up by blocking. Okay, <clears throat> so it really puts you at a, a strong advantage. Uh, and this is elevation of the art. Okay, um, so this, so in that regard, it's more advanced. But I still think it should be something that's taught from day one. You know, you want to hit without getting hit. You, you know, moving targets hard, harder than the stationary. So, you know, it, this is common sense, you know, but, but you, you, you got to do it scientifically. You know, you, you have to, um, you know, I, I've seen through the years, you know, uh, movies or even instructional things where, you know, the guys are way out of the way. Yeah. You may not get hit, but then what you can't, if you move 12 inches away, you got to move 12 inches again to get back. So that's two feet of wasted movement, you know, whereas I'd rather move three inches, and then the three inches coming back, I'm able to counter you. This ties into, oh, sorry. I was going to say this ties into the wrestling too. So people who come from a grappling background, they're used to level changes, right? Because I remember one of your criticisms watching some of us shadow box is that even if we're moving side to side a lot, quite often you'll notice, and this probably has to do with like uh, trying to conserve energy with your legs, but that our heads at the same level constantly. It's, that's something else someone can watch for when they're shadow boxing uh, that, you know, you should be, should see significant up and down motions, whether, you know, part of head movement, but that also kind of, and it's kind of interesting because to me, this ties into fainting too, you know, the body faints and stuff like and faint a shot, um, you know, it's part of my head movement. Correct. Yeah. Level change or, 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 you know, that's technically a, probably now it's more of a wrestling, uh, you know, vernacular, but boxers use it, you know, obviously up and down, bobbing, weaving, uh, ducking. Um, and uh, yeah, all, I look for all of it, you know, so you don't want your head constantly on constantly at that level. Uh, you just, you just want to make it. So I don't know where you're going to be. I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to be up. You're going to be down your left, right in, out, you know, and, and moving in means a lot because it can jam a hook. You know, I mean, you can't get a lot of power if, 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 if your head's here, you know, and I'm trying to hit you like this, I can't get my body behind it. So sometimes moving in, you know, getting on the, is, you know, used to be called fight, you know, inside fighting, you know, getting in on a guy, uh, you know, especially if the guy's got a reach advantage, you know, you don't want to be distance wise. You do not want to be in his, you know, premium power range okay you either want to be outside of it and that means if he's got a reach advantage you cannot counter him counter him unless you're kicking him maybe uh so being outside is totally defensive okay and your opponent's going to know that so if you keep moving backwards and backwards you well you know he's going to pick up on that and he's probably not going to deal with he'll he'll regroup but if you get inside his power, um, then you can do some damage to his body, to whatever. Uh, and if we're talking street fights, then you can use groin and everything else. And, of course, knees and elbows if you want to go that far. But right now, we need to just talk at a basic level and keep it where you're just using your head to defeat strikes from the hands. Um, but, yeah, so level up, down, in, out, left, right, and in all the angles. Uh, and, and look at your footwork. Um, you know, your feet have to be ready to go. They have to be under you ready to go because unlike just pure boxing, you can launch a kick, 
You got to have your, your body, your legs there. And you can launch, a, let's say, a shot um, to try to take, take the guy down. So once again, your distance has to be there. Um, your, your legs have to be under you. And you have to be aware of where the man's, the opponent's energy is. You don't want to take a shot on a guy if he's moving backwards. You know, you want him coming towards you, ideally, or frozen secondly, but you don't want to try to make shots when the guy's going away because it's more power, or I mean, uh, more distance that you have to cover. So it's, 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 diff- it's not something you're, you're going to learn in a month, okay? This, this takes an awful lot of training and uh, redundancy. You got to keep doing it, doing it, doing it. And like anything else, you start slow and you start cooperative, cooperatively. You don't want a guy coming at you full blast with everything he's got if you're just learning how to do this stuff because you're going to fail. You know, and it's going to be, oh, this shit don't work. Well, no, because you don't know how to do it yet, right? So you, you, you've got to – it goes back to ego. You know, you got to have a training partner that's going to be willing to work with you, and then you, conversely you work with him or her. And uh, slowly but surely – you know, this is going to become part of your uh, repertoire and it's going to become a little bit easier for you. I think it takes considerable, a lot more energy to work on infighting and constantly being proactive on the inside. To me, it's like the worst part about that for me is gassing out. Like I always felt like when I'm, when I'm working with somebody that has a bigger reach, I know I got to be more proactive, work on the inside. Uh, but I, seems like I gas out a lot faster. Well, if you do, I was going to try to pick this up. I'll show, I'll get to this in a second. If you do, it's because you're not in condition, you know, and I, you know, I emphasize conditioning, you know, what the hell I put you guys through when you're training over here, uh, heavy, heavy conditioning. And, um, boy, when you have that going for you, well, it's a big thing. So, I got like this piece of thing, right? It's no big deal. Just made it out of foam. I actually use this for something else. But you could take something like this, drill a hole if you want, hang it from a string, and just work on moving. As this thing's going back and forth like a pendulum, you can work work it all the way around your head. You know, just keep moving around. And, um, you know, just anything right now to try to get you to do that if you don't do the mirror thing. But you can do it in conjunction too. And, um boxers used to have the rope, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have a string going across the room and you'd work on bo- going under one end, coming up the other end, walking forward, going backwards, popping up on both. So weaving underneath that rope, that string. Uh, that's another thing. doesn't probably cost you pennies to get a, get a string. And you, you can, you can work on that, you know, so you're, you're knowing how to move forward and you're knowing how to, you know, even moving backwards properly. It, it just doesn't hurt. Um, very few fighters, or effective striking going backwards. Okay, I'm not saying it never happened. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, generally you want your energy going forward. But again, if, if you're moving backwards, the guy's coming at you and there's an opening, you, you can launch something. You know, one of the – an uppercut really works well. You can still generate the force you need on an uppercut. Um, just don't get crossed up. You have to watch your feet. If you're going to try to throw a right hand and you want to kind of shift your body as you're going backwards – you could find yourself off balance. As a matter of fact, your punch might land and you might actually get knocked down yourself from the, because you're off balance. You know, you won't get knocked down from a punch. You're just off balance. 
So <clears throat> keeping balance, you know, as I said, keeping your hips, your feet proper, uh, you know, is Im- imperative. So just uh, if you're using head movement defensively, just avoiding the punch is not enough. That's just one you can one one thing on the checklist. Okay. The second thing is, you know, can am I am I in a position to counter? You know, am am I vulnerable? Where's my vulnerabilities? And you know, today with cell phones or whatever, your video cameras, you know, you can do watch yourself. You can video yourself and review. This this wasn't available to anybody unless you were world, you know, you had a lot of a lot of money. Uh this wasn't available to, to us years ago, even relatively recently. So um, take advantage of the tools that are available to you uh, and, and incorporate them in your training. And, um, you know, you'll be surprised that if, if you're just disciplined enough to bitch at yourself for making mistakes and not say, oh, I look good, man. Um, if you're really critical to yourself, you you can really really start making headway, and that and that's, I think a lot a detriment to a lot of people is they, they don't want to hear criticism. They they just they're um, satisfied with what where they're at, or they think okay this was great, uh, when it was just really not that good, you know, or you know you could do better. So that that's hard when you're especially when you're self training or you're training with a coach that wants to be your friend first, you know, and, you know, just, you know, he's placating you. So you you need to drive hard. You need to really say, man, I'm weak in this area and keep working at it. And, you know, that, that, that boils down to drive. And I think we talked about this. I know Shoney's talked about this in the past. Um, you know, uh, don't base how good you are on your opponents that you may have fought in the, in the past. You know, uh, just because you were good enough to win doesn't necessarily mean that you're as good as you can be. So I think the goal, whatever one of us in anything that we do, fighting, wood carving, I don't care what it is, to to be the best that you can be, you know. Uh, That's how I always looked at it, you know. Um, And let it be known that there's a lot of things that I enjoy doing in my lifetime and and, uh, you know, I wasn't always the best that I could be at, at everything. You know, I, I still think I could be better at everything I've ever tried. I could have still been better. Um, you know, so that's just my advice. Just keep trying. Don't rest on your laurels, especially as, yeah, that's all. Yeah, enough. <laughs> I think yeah, I, was, uh, I was at a boxing gym one time, and they made this pretty cool tool. It was – um the coach made it. It was a broomstick. And on the end of the broomstick, he taped a, just a boxing glove. And then a little bit down the stick, probably like an arm's length away, he taped a uh, speed bag. So when he would take it, when he's working with his, his boxers, and he just throw, throw it at they got to move their head and hit, hit the bag pretty much at the same time. So it was teaching them you know, to move, but not too far so you can counter like at the same time. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, sounds good. You know, that's there you go. That's a coach that used his creativity and became a little more uh Yeah, that's good. You know, then I'm sure there's plenty of thing, you know, p- 
people to come up with, you know, their own thing. And I, I, I applaud people that do that, that creativity, you know, that's, that's ingenious, you know, and pretty simple make too. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is that you need, you know, whatever your weakness is, everybody has specifics, you know, we're all different, right? Some guys are really good at something naturals or they worked hard at it yet. They, they're, uh, you know, um, weak in some, some others. Sometimes, you know, don't even bother like trying to reinvent the wheel. Just ask, you know, and again, now with, with, with the internet, you can ask questions and somebody out there probably has already developed or created exactly what it is that you need. Okay. So, you, you know, um, like this thing that your, your coach said, you know, maybe he invented it. Maybe somebody else did it, you know, without each other knowing about it. You don't know. Um, so yeah, uh, I just feel that egos, and this is nothing like that's limited to this generation. I think it's many generations. If you know you you have your ego, that is your greatest opponent. You know, keeping you from. I, I remember watching a show on sports, and uh, Bob Feller. For those of you who don't know, was one of the greatest pitchers of all time. He was the Rapid Robert. Um, the fastest pitcher of his era, played for the Cleveland Indians, uh, starting in the late 30s, and so on. And uh, anyhow, years after he was done, he was done as a player. He was a coach. And they saw him on the pitcher's mound working on his pickoff move to the first baseman. Now, here's a guy who was never going to play sports, baseball ever again, because he had been retired 10, 15 years. It was done. But yet he was still working on his pickoff move to first base because he felt he never had it down good enough while he was a professional ball player. Now, that gave me goosebumps when I heard that because uh, there's a man who, you know, just loved what he did so much. And he, you know, thought, hey, I just never quite had this down as good as I could have. That's. You know, that's the kind of work ethic that all of us need, okay, in our life. And, you know, it, it's, it lacks in, 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 to a degree in all of us, okay? Uh, so if we had that going for us, you know, you're, you're going to succeed. You know, you just, you just, and again, what's the key to success? To me, it's not who you beat. It's, it's could, you, could you do as good as you, you know, did you become as good as you could become? So as long as you're striving for that, man, you're winning. You're on the winning path. Hey, you mentioned um, footwork and kicking, and that kind of transitions, but seems like a part of that. When we start to talk about kind of more of a self-defense or like a full spectrum fight outside of just boxing, you know, I've watched, you know, I think the example that comes to my mind is I watch how tie fighters move that lead leg because that kind of behind the, like your head is obviously like a prime target, but that lead leg is also for a trained fighter. If you're, you're facing someone who, who has some skills, they're going to be trying to kick out that knee or kick that leg. And you can only take a few of those. Um, so I've seen them do things where they like, you know, they're, it's almost like head movement, but for that lead leg where you're either lifting that leg in anticipation of a kick or shifting it around so they actually do you've seen like switch kicks where you're like your leads changes kind of where you draw back so occasionally you're just taking it out of the path 
uh, of, uh, you know, the, the target, but it seems, well, what, I guess, what are your thoughts uh, as far as that? Because obviously that's a trade-off with balance, you know, that's a little bit more risky, I think. Uh, but it also seems like a, a, a valuable target to, to keep it elusive. Everything comes at a price. And here we go again. Good question. But it's the medicine topic again. There's so many things that you can cover. And I feel when it gets to training, this is the issue with a lot of guys, especially since the advent of YouTube or the internet in general. They, oh, I want to try this. I want to try that. I want to da 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 Stop. Get good at one thing. Then we can worry about some other stuff. Because, yeah, everything you said is valid. But the, everything comes at a trade-off. You know, let's face it. If If you're worrying about the leg kicks, for example, well, you better be good at leg kicking to begin with. You know, if you don't know how to leg kick, then don't worry about that right now. Okay. Work, work on whatever you have. But when, when you, it, again, this is why you have like specialty specialists in medicine or in education. Okay. People who teach science or history or English or whatever, mathematics. And then even that has subsets. So it, it becomes a daunting task. Um, yeah, it do, yes, you have to worry about your leg positioning. Yes, you have to worry about your footwork and balance. <clears throat> but ultimately, what is it that you're looking at? What, what is the thing here? Now, you, you mentioned tie boxing, so we'll speak in generalizations. Boxers have much better head movement and punches, okay? Tie boxers are great with the kicks. They, yeah, they got the elbows. Boxers can use elbows too. It's illegal, but, you know, believe me. Pretty much every boxer I've ever met knows how to throw wicked elbows. Okay, um, so what? What? Yeah, it's it is a complete trade off. <clears throat> and then you throw in the wrestling. Okay, now you're a wrestler, so maybe where a boxer is going to clinch just to st stop punches, while a wrestler may clinch for a whole different purpose, right? To throw you like Shoney would, or or some other Greco guy, or or you know any anybody that likes to throw. So where are we here? You know. Um, and I just take the approach once again of slow it down, okay? And I'm just as guilty. I was like this, not only with fighting, but with music and everything, and even sometimes with shooting pool. You know, I, I get frustrated, and I'm like, okay, forget it. I'm not going to try to cut shots. I'm going to go to the bank shots today. No, you, you, you have to have that discipline to master something. Get, get one thing going, learning control of your body. It's just more than a mastering of a technique. You've got to look at it as a, you just mastered your own body. You, you have good control over your body. Once you can do your body in one element, then it becomes easier for you to train your body to do another element. So take it in stages. Um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You're, you're going to have your hands full just worrying out head movement and shit just from a boxing standpoint, you know, let alone leg kicks. Okay. Um, yeah, make the, your student or make yourself aware so you know what, what you have coming down the pike, okay? Um, but just focus on, you know, one thing. And getting, again, back to this leg kick thing, that's, you know, you, you, you have to be prepared to launch good leg kicks. That's in itself a lot of work. You know that because you've, you've, you've trained Thai boxing. You know, you know what it's like, how – how difficult it is to you know really kick with authority. Um, it's there again for those that are beginners listening to this. I don't want to sound like a negative person, but 
it's it's a lot it's it's really a lifetime of learning there, there's just so much to learn you know that's that's why you don't see anybody who's a master at all of it okay it's it's there's just so much so you you just go with what you feel most natural for you go with what the coach thinks is your strengths and then work your tail off and then if you blow out your coach you know if you if you get to the point where he can he, he or she can't give you anymore then you move on to a more advanced coach you know or 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 somebody who's who's got a little little insight into into you you know um but it's it's a journey man it 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 really is it, it uh, yeah so much to learn hey, Tony, is there any boxers or fighters that stand out to you as have really good head movement well you know going way back uh you know joe frazier moved a lot you know uh he was like an infighter but a lot of that had to come from his uh you know uh, his physique you know and his you know his, his height um Ali was one of the, he wasn't so much an infighter. He, he liked to fight on the outside, but he was elusive. Um, I, Marvin Hagler to me had, you know, good, good head movement. Um, <clears throat> of course, again, Willie Pep, who many consider the best defensive fighter of them all. Great head movement. Sugar Ray Robinson, you really want to go way back. You know, he was unique. He was one of those guys that could knock you out going backwards. Okay. Uh, he, but he was a tap dancer too. He had, so he had, he he was graceful. He had that rhythm. He 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 had good control of his body, um, you know. Uh, and it, it's so imperative to do that, you know. Uh, and then Mike Tyson, okay, boom. I mean, here was a heavyweight that had good head movement, and you know, you, I don't think you realize just how blistering fast. Okay. I knew Bobby Hitz, and just, just to put this in perspective, Bobby Hitz fought George Foreman in his in Foreman's, when Foreman made his comeback, and he almost made it through the first round. Bobby Hitz, okay, uh, he got knocked out with seconds left in the first round. And one of the things that Bobby told me is, it's startling how fast George Foreman was. Now Foreman had twenty three inch arms, right? He was just a big guy watching him. It didn't look like he threw punches fast. You got to get in the ring with these guys and you got to see what it's, you know, it's a whole world of experience. Now take Tyson, who literally is a lot faster than George Foreman. It's, it would be frightening. It would be an eye opener. If you could get in the ring with him when he, especially when he was in his prime and he's boom, 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 you know, throwing these hooks and it's like, Oh my goodness. And I, I have my Theories on, you know, how Tyson got, why he did the head movement so well. But he fought the peekaboo style, you know, a customado, boom, boom, boom. And um, so when I talk about modern, even though he's really not modern anymore, I guess. But to me, that was, you know, he was, he had a lot of good head, a lot of good head movement. Um, and uh, when, when he got, you know, when he kind of kicked, loose of Kevin Rooney, his trainer, they, you know, it's Tyson's st- his whole thing kind of changed. You know, I don't want to speak on Mike's behalf. Have him on the show. He can talk about it himself, but there was, man, early Mike Tyson, whew, 
he was he was hard to hit, man, and he hit hard too. So, so that that's probably the you know, I just like the way he fought. To tell you the truth, in the beginning, I just like that head movement shit. Um, so yeah, that's just. But he had good conditioning, you know, especially early on in his career, you know, and uh, you know, a lot of those guys back then. Remember, going way back to like Ray Mancini in the Duke Kim fight, kind of put the end of the fifteen rounders. But, you know, the championship fights used to be 15 rounds, you know. So those guys, you know, in many, in many of those fights, not everyone, in many of those fights, they, they had more in them. I mean, they could go another five rounds. The conditioning of some of those fighters back then was extraordinary. extraordinary. Not every one of them, but, you know, there were, there were some, you know, fantastic fighters. And, or you get a guy, like I said, with Willie Pepper or, or uh, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, these had over – you're, you're talking about guys who had 250 or more fights. Some people now they didn't fight twice a year. Okay. To get 200 fights, 250 fights. They, they were fighting often. So conditioning, you know, a lot of these guys really were never out of shape. Think about that. You know, they're, they're walking around in shape pretty much. You know, uh, other fighters like, like Roberto Duran was one of them who, you know, tended to like to blow up, you know, uh, later on, you know, and he smoked, I guess, and everything. So, you know, he had to work to get in shape. Um, a lot of fighters didn't. And there's another ferocious fighter. Oh, my goodness, Roberto Duran. My God, especially as a lightweight in the early 70s. You know, it's, it's unbelievable, you know. <clears throat> when you start dropping names, you know, you forget somebody, you leave somebody out, and then somebody's going to say, well, what about this guy? What about that guy? And, yeah, there were plenty of fighters, you know, that – that were, um, and then you, know, you got it. And then you had guys like, you know, Floyd Mayweather, you know, Roy, Roy Jones Jr. Who brought different types of physical gifts. Um, that think that may, you just may not be able to duplicate, right. Because they had maybe extraordinarily, extraordinarily fast reflexes or something. Um, on that note, I can tell you this, cause you know, you guys know Johnny Lira was a, you know, close friend of mine. So Johnny fought Howard Davis for those of you who don't know, Howard Davis won the gold in 1976 along with Ray Sugar Ray Robinson, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard. And Howard Davis was really fast, probably faster hand speed than Sugar Ray Leonard. But it really, at that stage of the game, it's, you know, it all comes down to timing, who capitalizes on the openings. But anyway, um, when Johnny was fighting him, Howard uh, Davis, uh, Johnny actually won the first round or two, okay? Because, uh, um, Howard Davis was pretty much flat-footed. Well, then Howard Davis started moving around, head moving in this and that. And, you know, Johnny even told me, he says, it was over for me then. I couldn't hit the guy, okay? I mean, my punches were meaningless. I could not keep up with that. And that is a very good example of, you know, uh, the the, the difference, how, you know, being a relatively stationary target and all of a sudden becoming a moving target, uh, no, it's incredible. On that note, I just want to mention, I'm going to veer off. A couple of days ago, Rocky Lockridge died. And, you know, he was a you know world champion and he had some issues. He was 60 years old. That to me is young. Um, that's, that's unfortunate. Um, but yeah, getting in. Yeah. So there's, damn. But when I see a fighter like that, you know, that moves so well, um, to me, it's just, it's, I know it's violent and, you know, it's boxing. And a lot of people are opposed to it and, you know, call, 
called for the banning of boxing and then along comes MMA and everything. But there's just a beauty of how a person can control. It's like a ballet. Okay. Really. How, it's, it's, you know, it really is something. And it would even be more obvious to everyone if you took a Roberta Duran or a Howard Davis or a Tyson and just put them in there with a like, you know, very mediocre fighter, let's say, or somebody who had no skill. That's when you really see, oh, my God, you know, compared to, to an average person or just a moderate, modestly skilled fighter. That's when you really see the difference of what they're doing. So in other terms, it's like watching an Olympic weightlifter. And if he's clean and jerking 550 and his opponent is clean and jerking 545, you don't see the, the vastness. Yeah, he's only five pounds stronger. You don't, you don't get it when you sitting on the couch probably can only clean and jerk 125 pounds. You know, that's when you see the, the, the level upon level upon levels. So um, you may never reach that 550 pounds or that head movement like Tyson or Howard Davis or, you know, Hagler or Hearns or somebody, but you can certainly be better than where you are right now. And, you know, that's what we're all about. This is, again, this is a journey here. And uh, it, should, it should last as long as you're, mentally and physically capable. Tony, did you ever watch Floyd Patterson? Because I know he had the same coach as Tyson, but I never really seen him. Well, I'm old, but I'm not that old. (laughs) I mean, he, I think he retired like in 72, but I mean, I've seen clips subsequently. He was really a blown up middleweight, um, you know, and that don't mean that derogatory, you know, he was a, you know, light heavyweight champ and then a heavyweight champ, um, you know, until he ran into, you know, Sonny Liston. And, you know, um, there's a, that's a very interesting, uh, you know, character study with Sonny Liston. He was a Mike Tyson at that era. Um, Yeah. Floyd Patterson did train with Customato. And and now I may be wrong, but I believe Floyd was his first world, was Cus's first world champion. Um, You can't compare Floyd Patterson to, uh, you know, to Mike Tyson. Just, you can't, uh, you know, Tyson is tw- at 12 years old was, you know, knocking down and knocking out adults inspiring. I mean, Tyson was just physically more dominant. Um, he just was something special, you know? Uh, and, and Floyd was as well in his weight class, but you know, Floyd stepped it up. Uh, if I could have, been magic here. I would love to have seen Mike Tyson versus Sonny Liston in their primes. Legit fight. No, you know, um, controversy about taking dives and all of that. Uh, as, as you know, the thing is with, uh, you know, Cassius Clay versus Sonny Liston thing. Um, I would love to have seen Sonny Liston against Mike Tyson. That would have just been my thing. Um, I would love to see that. I really would have. I would love. Would love to have seen that. Uh, as far as uh, power punchers in that mix, where would you put uh, George Foreman? I know his style is different. Way up there, you know. Top. I mean, Ernie Shavers, okay, which is acknowledged as number one. Uh, 
you, you got to perform it up there. If, if you know, I mean, it again, it's it's hard when you when you're that dominant. Um, you know, it, it's it's a toss up, right? Um, but it's not just how hard you hit; it's the timing. It's where do you hit, and do you hit when he least expects it? It's not the hardest punches that that knock you down. Sometimes it's the ones that you don't expect that you don't see coming because your body and your mind cannot prepare for it. Okay, you know that's important. But yeah, George, uh, not George Chavalo, although that guy could take a punch. He never was knocked down. Uh, uh, George Foreman, yeah, Shavers. You know, I, I would, I would, I would go with you know, I would go with Mike's left hook. Uh, you know, Tyson's left hook. Uh, Ernie, Hol- uh, Larry Holmes had a, a terrific jab for a heavyweight. I don't know if I want to be on it. You know, his jab at the end of that jab is like a piston. You know, that, that jab could, you know, could set you, you know, just could knock you down if you weren't looking for it. Um, yeah. I mean, again, now here, I don't know. All right. Just based on people in the game that, that talk to me, uh, Jerry Cooney hit hard. Okay, now maybe not Ernie Shaver's hard, but you know, for you know, Cooney was taking people out in, in early rounds, and we're talking guys like Ken Norton and shit, you know. So, uh, <clears throat> and he went into extended rounds with Larry Holmes. I think he he got knocked out, I believe, in the thirteenth round, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I could be wrong, but I, I I'm pretty sure it was the thirteenth round. But I, I haven't thought about it in years. But thirteenth, fourteenth round. So, again, if it was a 12-round fight, I mean, again, we're speculating. Maybe Larry would have stepped it up. Who knows? But uh, And I'm not by any means saying that Larry uh, Jerry would have won. I'm just saying I think he got knocked out in the 13th round. But, yeah, a couple people have told me that Jerry Cooney hit hard. But, uh, yeah, Foreman, Shavers, those are the two names that were, you know, always brought up to me. Uh as far as, you know, I was, you know, as far as the hard, hard, I saw Shaver's fight. You know, I was actually in the gym with him at the same time once, but I saw him fight, um, which was a joke fight. The guy was at the Richfield Coliseum and it was, a, whoever he was supposed to fight and didn't show up and they got a substitute and the guy was just falling down. Literally. He was so frightened of Ernie. I, I, you can look it up in the record book, but I think it was like a two round fight or something. The ref was just like, this is, this is a bullshit fight. You know, um, nothing against Ernie. He came to fight. His opponent just, just didn't. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah. And then the old timers, the World War II guys, you know, they all loved uh, uh, Joe Lewis. You know, that was uh, that was their guy. You know, Joe Lewis had a lot going for him. And uh, Max Schmeling in their first fight watched film. Picked him apart. He said he saw a flaw, and Schmeling was able to capitalize on it. <clears throat> in their rematch, you didn't want to be Max Schmeling in that fight. Um, and another hard hitter, going back to that era, was Max Bear. He had a knockout right hand, the Livermore Larriper, and the guy hit hard with his right hand. You know, uh, but again, what it the weights they weren't as big as the guys subsequently. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and anything before that, you know, it's pure speculation. If you're getting back to John L. Sullivan and, you know, uh, Jack Johnson and Dempsey, all that, you, you got to keep everything in 
you know, in perspective, I don't believe those guys hit as hard. Probably. I don't know it. Why even talk about it? Cause we, you can't test it, but um, yeah. Don't worry. It isn't you, Joe. <laughs> You're not the hardest hitting, hitting heavyweight, but who well, knows who might come along? I don't know. I was going to say on that note, like, how do you recommend developing power? Does it just spending time just trying to do individual shots as hard as you can into a heavy bag? Just really trying to focus on that aspect of your, should you spend time, I guess, just trying to develop power and growing that? Power comes from, not from your punch, but from your body. It comes from the earth, through your foot, through your knee, your hip, your shoulder, your elbow, your wrist, all of it working in unison learning how to hit. So it's more than just arm punching, throwing punches at the bag. It's a whole body thing. And don't, now this is going to be controversial, but don't watch the heavy bag because I can, I can make that heavy bag swing so hard at it. It hit the ceiling. doesn't mean I punched hard. It could have been a push. That heavy bag needs to collapse. Actually, if it's bouncing, and that's probably a good indicator of your power. You want that bag to be crushed as opposed to just moving around. Because again, arm punches can really look powerful, but they're not. They're pushes many times. You need that body weight behind you. And frankly, you need a coach. You, you need a guy or gal who knows how to do this that can help generate that power. Um, I've never... Uh, seen or used one, but I guess they have uh, impact force detectors or something. You've seen it on shows. I don't really know how accurate they are. I'm not saying they are or not. I don't know. I'm not qualified to, to give an opinion. But under the speculation that they are accurate, you know, if you had one of those, that's fine. But it don't matter. You, you still need a proper coach to show you just exactly how you're hitting. Don't get up on your tiptoes. Don't go on your heels. I can tell you that. Um, that's universal. Um, you have to be planted enough, you know, to throw that punch. But remember, if you're so focused on power, you you will sacrifice maneuverability, okay? You'll become so stationary because you're sitting down on your punches so deeply to hit that power shot that you may um, become vulnerable in other areas. So it's... Um, uh, I don't know the word that I'm thinking of. There's, it's, it, it, there's a chain reaction to everything. And, and, you know, when you take, when you develop something, maybe something else lacks behind. So you, you've really got to be balanced because, you know, let's face it, Joe, everybody, if they had, you know, Samantha Stevens over here wiggling her nose and making the greatest fighter, we'd all want to hit harder than anybody, take a punch better than anybody, be the fastest fighter so you can't land up. We'd, we'd, we'd want all these attributes. And it's never happened. It, there, there's never been a guy like that, and there never will be because, you know, there's limits to what you can do. So you can only do so much. So get a good coach, everybody that's listening and, and discuss this. A good coach will sit there and listen to you. And, and they, they should be able to tell you, hey, I think you're geared for this or you're geared for that. You know, focus on this, not so much that. Um, you know, and that's where an honest assessment comes into play. You know, sometimes when money crosses hands, you know, 
that's what it's all about. Well, I'm going to just say whatever the student wants to hear because I want to get money from the guy or gal, you know, yeah. I mean, it is business and everybody's got to get paid, but you, you still need an honest assessment. Um, and remember back in the days of, of, of your lore, you know, they didn't, uh, of yesteryear, they didn't believe in lifting weights, you know, and along comes guys that started lifting weights, you know, maybe Kenny, you know, one of them, Kenny Norton, uh, uh, Mike Weaver, you know, was a heavyweight champ for a while, you know, looked like a bodybuilder. Um, you know, there was, there was guys that started to look sculpted, you know, and, uh, the only big time weightlifter that I could think of back many, many years ago would have probably been, well, I guess John L. Sullivan lifted weights, but Primo Canera, you know, and he's never going to be listed as one of the greatest fighters ever, you know, ever. He was, you know, the poster child, I guess, from muscle bound, <clears throat> but he was a strong man. You know, he did feats of strength in Italy and whatever, and probably South America. And, you know, he was very muscular for the time and uh, didn't equate to hitting hard. And matter of fact, you know, some people said he, he didn't hit hard. You know, some of those knockdowns were, you know, maybe not real. I don't know. I wasn't there before my time. He turned to wrestling, by the way. Luthez knew him. But uh, me, I still believe in speed, speed, speed. Because uh, if you're fast, you're fast all over the place. If you can throw a punch hard, that doesn't mean you can translate that to wrestling. But if you're fast on your feet, you're going as a boxer, you're going to be fast on your feet as a wrestler. You know, if you have those fast twitches, you're going to be on the ground moving fast. So to me, speed is more um, important to me. This is just me now saying this. Speed to me makes logical sense where you have more applications to apply it. Um, you know, cause punching is, you know, there's, there's a lot to it, man. And it, like I said, it's, it's, it's timing and hitting them when, when they're least expecting it. Tony, did Rod Von put a lot of emphasis on strength training since he came from that old man or absolutely. strong man training? hundred percent. Absolutely. He wanted to be, and he knew that, you know, with poverty, he knew that I wasn't going to go out there and get a weight set. So it was training with within the limits of what I had, which I'm not, I thought that in hindsight, it's kind of good because, you know, if, if he, you know, if somebody's telling you, oh, if you only had a weight set, or if you only had 500 pounds of weights, oh, if you only had a dip bar, or if you only, if you only had a decline bench and an incline bench, if they start telling you all this shit, man, it's, de it's demoralizing, okay? Especially back then. Now you can go to a gym for 10, to, 10 bucks a month and get access to all of this. Those didn't exist back in my day like that. So yeah. Oh, being strong for wrestling was, was, was key. But again, now that's an anaerobic thing. That's all wrestling is different than boxing, you know? And, um, you have to realize that going in, uh, but for sure, regardless of the sport you're in, uh, even if it has nothing to do with fighting, it could be pole vaulting. It could be anything track and field. You need to be in the best shape that you can be. You know, it's all about that. It's about conditioning. It's about strength. It's about speed. Uh, really, it is. I cannot emphasize the importance of, of being in shape if you expect to become a world champion or elite world-class 
world-class athlete. And many times what separates the best in the world from the 10th best is small degrees. I mean, like the hundred meter dash, it could be two tenths of a second, which doesn't, which isn't much, but in, in sprinting, it's quite a distance, you know, in hundred meters. So it, it, it boils down to man, your body <clears throat> has to be so finely tuned. So constantly try to improve it, but again, be balanced. You know, there's no point in benching 700 pounds. Uh, if, if, you know, the, the, the amount of time and effort it would take to do that and your diet and everything else is going to take away from everything else. Okay. You're not going to be able to live in the gym, working out on boxing, kickboxing and grappling for six hours, you know, and try to develop a 700 pound bench. You know, it's, it's, it's all about realistic goals. All three of those things, Nico, are different elite sports. And, um, you know, to become the best, you'd have to dedicate your whole life to one sport to be the best in the world at that. Um, so take the well-rounded approach, be, be pretty strong, be pretty fast, be pretty, you know, pain tolerant, be pretty quick thinking, you know, work on all of that. And, and, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're going to shine in your own little world. Hey, did Rodvon ever make you do isometric strength training? Yes. Excuse me. I'm drinking some water here. Yes. Um, isometrics, isotonics. Yeah. The, the Charles Atlas type of thing, you know, where you're resisting against yourself and resisting against the wall and doing, um, uh, like lockout, you know, like holding, uh, push up positions and holding chin up positions and so on. Uh, Hercules chairs, uh, uh, I call them Hercules chairs, but there's another name for it too. Uh, where you lean up against the wall. It's on my videos, uh, that kind of stuff to just build up that, that endurance. Uh, yeah, all of that stuff. Absolutely. Um, you got to remember that there was a time where not a lot of people lifted weights. Okay. And those that did, didn't do the bodybuilding type or even the powerlifting type. And then that came into vogue. Uh, so there, there's an evolution of strength training. Um, if you watch, any of the old, sometimes even movies, <clears throat> and going even up into the 40s, maybe even the 50s, you could see movies that showed gyms, but they looked more gymnastic. They had parallel bars, and they had Roman, the, the rings and everything like that, right? You can see that. And they, they'd have clubs, and, they, you know, just it, it wasn't like a gym like we see now, per se, Okay. Uh, the bench press was really damn near never used. I mean, I don't want to say never because that's definitive, but that wasn't a very popular exercise that came upon, that came out later. So yeah, everything was an evolution. <clears throat> so doing isometrics was part of what he learned probably as a child. And he continued on with that, with gave me the breathing exercises and so on. And, um, and then of course, this was the seventies. And I would see muscle magazines and of course, Steve Reeves, the Hercules and Arnold. So it was a, it was well progressed way beyond, you know, what type of exercises he did. Rodman did, you know, there was the told everything. This was powerlifting that, you know, came into play. 
which, you know, is, is different than the Olympic weightlifting, different set of exercises in the, for the most part, different philosophy, different um, attributes. You know, there's a lot of quickness in Olympic lifting, lots of quickness, you know, um, whereas, you know, not as much in the bench, the squat and the deadlift. Okay. Um, and by the way, which is kind of uh, on that note, probably the world's greatest deadlifter was in Cleveland at the time I was a kid. I never got to meet him. Vincenello. Um, an extraordinary um, deadlifter. Uh, I believe he lived on the west side of Cleveland or something. As I said, I never met him. And um, there was another guy that I met because he used to come to my mom's restaurant. My mom used to be a waitress. I believe his name was Howard Pretzel. They called him Mr. 1000. He lifted a million pounds in one day. He did the, uh, oh, what was the old time strong? It was an old time strong man that did that. Uh, I can picture the guy and I can't just think of his name. But anyway, this guy did it. And he used to do like repetitious squats and repetition deadlifts and everything. Um, And I got to, he was at the restaurant for breakfast or something. And my mom called me and I came down there and just sat with him and talked to him. He actually gave me a sheet of paper that had uh, articles about him from the Cleveland Plain Dealer and Cleveland Press or whatever. And he signed his autograph. Of course, that was your, I was just young. I don't, I don't have that anymore. I wish I did. Um, but he was very strong. And unfortunately I really, you know, I don't remember the gist of our conversations or our conversation. Cause I only met him the one time. Um, I, I got the inkling. I do remember that he, you know, I don't know so much if he knew who Rod Von was, but he, he, he wasn't into strong men. Okay. Howard Pretzel was into powerlifting. And that's another thing. There's rivalries there. Okay. I remember watching um, the world's strongest men competition. And back when, uh, oh, I don't like to do this, but, you know, Bruce Wilhelm was winning it. And, you know, they had some bodybuilders on there. They had Mike Dayton, Colombo, Lou Ferrigno, whatever. He wasn't too um, complimentary to the bodybuilders. Okay. And Bruce was a very strong guy. He was an Olympic lifter. Okay. Snatch, clean and jerk, press. Uh, so you have your little things, you know, and then long came down Reinhardt, who was a power lifter. He won the world's strongest man. And, uh, and, and to this day, there's, there's, there's a big rivalry between power lifters and, and weightlifters as to who's, who's really the stronger of the two. Uh, and now since they have these really serious strongman competitions and they've had them for years and years and years now, those are just unique uh, training you know, you train specifically to win the world's strongest man. So your training encompasses everything. There's no long, no, no more purity. <clears throat> it's like, meaning, you know, I don't think a guy who's just an Olympic lifter is going to come in there and win that tournament or a guy who's just a power lifter is not going to come in there and win that tournament. You know, raw poundages, a power lifter lifts more weight. Okay. Let's face it, you know, um, but the weightlifters have that explosiveness going for them, you know, um, yeah, it's, I mean, if I was more of a power lifter than I was an Olympic lifter, you know, um, Joe Dankowski that works with us, one of my students and friends, he's more, he does the Olympic lifts. Okay. Um, I don't, I mean, I've tried them, but you know, I never put any effort into it. I was afraid with my back. I didn't want to me that I just didn't want to risk it. You know, I had, I had enough going on. 
it's it's amazing how much technique is involved with that stuff. I mean, you look at those guys and you think they're just big, strong muscle guys, but there's actually very technical lifts. There's a lot of technique involved with that. Tony, well, powerlifting too. You know, there's a lot of technique involved in powerlifting. You know, yeah. and and there's a lot of assistance work that goes in, into it. You know, working your triceps, working other muscle groups, your lats, uh, and so on. You know, working your your back. Uh, it's more than just, you know, benching, but let's say, you know, if you let's focus on that, but be that as it may, you still need to bench and yeah, there, there's technique to it. And, uh, but yeah, in the Olympic lifts, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about with that explosiveness, power cleans, cleaning jerks. They don't do the press anymore, but, um, you know, matter of fact, one of the greatest pressers, Olympic pressers of all time was, um, (sighs) Ken Patera, boy, my, my brain don't work, who ended up, you know, obviously being a pro wrestler. But Ken Patera, I believe, actually outpressed uh, Vasily Alexia. But um, the problem back then was they would back arch, you know, while they're pressing. It wasn't like a military press, right, where your back is straight or you're up against a board. And, you know, it became almost like a, a standing power uh, bench press, kind of. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you get my idea. So, yeah, there was too much um, variable, I guess. But, I mean, Ken was a 500-pound presser. Think about that. That's strength, okay? Of course, he was was over 300 pounds. But, um, yeah, it's just, man, what human beings can do, uh, you know, it's startling. And, you know, the Bulgarians and the Russians back in my, when I was a kid, you know, they were in the Germans. There was some, uh, uh, Gerd, Gerd Bank, I believe another Olympic weightlifter that was strong. And, you know, there was just, it was just unbelievable, uh, what the body can do. (laughs) It's just, just. But I think what a lot of people need to do is see how these guys are 20 years after their career is over. You know, what kind of shape and condition are they in physically, you know, and everything. Cause you know, all that stuff takes its toll. You know, it, it really does, you know, lifting to, to be healthy and lifting to be the strongest man in the world are, you know, not necessarily the same thing. So who's going to win in a fight, the strong man, the weightlifter or the powerlifter? I could make a joke. Uh, I mean, I, you, you would you would think the strong man is more well-rounded, right? I mean, it's a fight. The, the guy that's going to win is the guy that knows how to fight. You know, I mean, those three, I've seen big dudes that it was, it was actually comical because they didn't know what they were doing. It was the guy who, who the guy who, uh, the last guy to run out of, steam <laughs> who, who didn't gas himself that's normally honestly that's the, that's the most honest answer i can give the guy who runs out of gas last you know um although didn't uh what's his name boy marius uh Puchanowski, i believe or what is he was one of the strongest men in the world he 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 beat one of the gracies in a mixed match you know and knocked them out cold or something like that um you know, uh, but yeah, generally it's, you gotta, you gotta be in shape, man. You, you know, fighting is a whole different ball of wax. I, speaking of that here, 
again, on the strongest man in the world competition. At one point, they had sumo as an event. And I, I, there's no chance that I can remember who the NFL player was. But um, uh, the strong man was, uh, I, I mentioned him a couple weeks, a month ago. Boy, how my brain just don't remember. He's the guy, he broke, he blew his shoulder out, uh, bending the bars, Bill Kazmaier. So Bill Kazmaier, before his match, he was like, you know, I hope they, they do have some, some sort of professional sumo competition in, in America because I would be interested in participating in that. Well, then he goes up against this NFL lineman, and it, it, was, a de- it was a demolition. The NFL lineman just, you know, beat him bad because an NFL guy, that's what he's used to, block and boom. You know, and, and Kazmaier just, just did not have the technique. He didn't know how to do it. It's not a knock on Bill Kazmaier. He just, his strength was completely negated. Yes, he was stronger than the NFL guy, but it didn't matter. In that sumo match, Kazmaier lost. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, but it's fun to speculate on that, right? It is. We all do that. Um, matter of fact, it wasn't several years ago, it was Michael Johnson against Maurice Green. Mo Green was a 100-meter dash champ. And um, Michael Johnson was the 200 and 400 meter champ. And they set up a race to 150 meters. I remember that. Yeah. Do you remember who won? I don't remember the names, but I think the 200 meter guy won. Well, look it up because it was, I'm not going to give it away. There's probably a video on it and you should watch, everybody should watch that video and see how that race transpired. Cause it's kind of, it's kind of eye opening. Um, but yeah, it's always fun to speculate, you know, like they have pool players going against snooker guys and they, you know, the snooker wins the snooker, the pool players sometimes win, you know, wins the pool, but um, you know, it, it's fun to do that. It really is to speculate, you know, what a cricket, how would a cricket guy do playing baseball? How would a baseball player do doing playing cricket? You know, uh, it, no matter what, both athletes come away with a, a very awesome set of respect for the opposite sport because it brings things in that you can't fathom until you try to do it. That's why becoming the greatest in the world at something is so awesome and yet so single focused. It, it's rare that you have people who are the best in the world at, at crossover stuff. <clears throat> and speaking of pool, and speaking of the best, maybe the best was the worst. And what I mean by that was there was a guy out of Michigan named Harold Worst, W-O-R-S-T. And he was the world three-cushion billiard champ, and he won the world – he was a world pocket billiard champ at the same time. And who knows how good he could have been. He died at a very young age, 38 or 39 from cancer. But he literally was – three-cushion champ of the world and pool, pocket billiards, American pocket billiards champ of the world at the same time. Uh, and that's, that's incredible. And I'm not certain it's ever been duplicated, uh, those two specific uh, sports. I know that William Moscone and you know, Efren Reyes have, have played, you know, uh, three-cushion, but they were never at the world championship level. So I'm not saying it can't happen, you know, but it, it takes a very unique person. And that person has to come around at the right time, has to have the right coaches, and has to have the right um, dedication to want to do it. 
And, uh, you know, that's, you know, it's just, it's just, it's fun to think about that, isn't it? Did you ever um, watch that TV show? I want to call it Battle of Network Stars, but it wasn't because that was TV stars. This was like, it was like on the off season, they'd get all these professional athletes to Hawaii. They'd be someone from baseball, someone from basketball, and they'd have them just basically, it was kind of like track and field day. It was superstars. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Well, Greg from the Cleveland Browns won it like two years in a row. I remember that was very eye-opening. I remember they had like a, a champion triathlete and he, he, because everything was short distance and strength-based, he was just blown out of the water. He couldn't compete. You know, they had all these different things, including like obstacle courses. Um, Bowling. Yeah. Um, but that was fun to get just, hey, let's see who can, you know, they just mix it up. Let's see who can win here. Um, Willie Galt. Do you remember him from the Bears? Played him. Yep. Uh, I remember him blowing out the record on the obstacle course. They had like, you know, it was like they had the monkey bars and a rope swing. And at the end of the uh, obstacle course, they had a series of hurdles and then they had a high jump with a mat. So the the high jump was probably, I don't know, I'm picturing it like chest or shoulder height. And so everybody would run up to it and kind of dive roll onto the big mat. But uh, Willie Galt, he ran through the hurdles and then he hurdled the high jump. He was had such athleticism. He just blew past it. It was like one of the most stunning athletic things I've ever seen. And like no one could touch him because but it was just that kind of mix of a, uh, explosive, well-rounded athleticism that you talk about that like, yeah, he was just couldn't be touched. Well, Galt, you know, was an Olympic class uh, hurdler and he was a very fast human being. And even in advanced age, he, he kept his speed up. He was still competing in age group uh, track events. And I haven't kept in touch or not personally, I don't know the man, but you know, kept track of his career subsequently but um you know he was one of those guys that made it a, a living it, it was it was a philosophy of life with him um uh, daryl green is another one who just was blessed with quickness not necessarily 100 meter guy or 200 meter guy but just a 40 yard dash stuff and you know when he was 50 years old he was still running four four forties and shit like that or even maybe better four threes you know just one of those guys you know so yeah you do have those those type of athletes that that you know, like strength guys, you know, strength, you can tend to keep longer than speed. Um, you know, and, uh, that's why when older people call, write me and say, okay, if I do your try, see, am I too old? You're not, you can, you know, you can always get in better condition. You may never set a world record here, maybe an age group thing, but you can, you can work on it. But if, if somebody was 50, 55 years old and says, I want to train with you and I want to you know, compete in the Olympics for the 100 meter dash, it's not going to happen. Okay. Uh, you can't at that age make it. But um, yeah, these, yeah, there was, yeah, Kyle Rowe Jr. won it. Um, like I said, Greg Pruitt won it twice. He actually um, was very quick. Uh, he lost in the 100 yard dash to OJ Simpson, but he was leading out of the blocks. I remember. Greg Pruitt at one point when he's still playing for the Browns made a challenge. He said he can beat any NFL player running the 40 yard dash with a ball. Okay. That was the, that was the thing with a football, not just sprint, but with the football. Cause he, he had that football quickness and Greg Pruitt is not a big man at all running back. He I believe he won actually the weightlifting uh, uh, portion of it. Um, you know, where they, they press for, you know, whatever. And, um, and I do remember Brian Oldfield 
who shocked the world because he was a shot putter. And he just, I don't remember how much he pressed, but he had 300 pounds and he did like three, four reps. And I believe he won the 100 meter, 100 yard dash as well. Or he came in second because he was amazingly fast for a guy his size. And I think he passed away, but I found out not too long ago that he was living the uh, south suburbs of Chicago somewhere, which I never knew. Um, yeah, he was a wild man. He was something. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if Lyle Elzato was in it. He may have been. I know Lyle Elzato entered the earlier strongest men in the world competitions. According to Lyle, that's how he got exposed to steroids when he, when he entered that uh, strongman competition. I don't know if it's true or not. He boxed. You know, he did an exhibition match with Muhammad Ali at Mile High Stadium. Did you know that? Mm-mm. I remember him, and I remember him actually dying kind of young. Mm. Yeah, he did. But, uh, yeah, I didn't know he boxed. Yeah, he did an exhibition. I saw it on a wide world of sports or wherever it was. But, yeah, he was because he played for the Browns. He played for the um, Denver Broncos, Rams. Um, that's a guy I always thought was going to turn into pro wrestling. I really did. I remember he was on the Merv Griffin show or something like that with Henry, uh, with Ray Mancini. My mo- he's one of my guys, man, from uh, Youngstown, Ohio. And whoever, I think it was Merv, you know, how would you handle Lyle in a fight? Ray's like, oh, no problem, man. Just a few body shots, I'll bring him down. You know, it was lighthearted, but, but honestly, yeah. I mean, you know, if they were going to fight, box, you know, not like a street fight. If they were going to box... That's the right approach. Get inside, get away from Alzado's strength, hit him with a few body shots because he's probably not in condition. Maybe he'll drop his guard, step back, hook, cross, whatever, and knock him out. Or just take him out with a solid body shot or two. You know, that was Mancini's, um, you know, take on it. And I don't think he was kidding. I mean, that I, that would have been – that's the way to handle something like that. You know, um, yeah, you're bringing up old. You're bringing up old times, man. It's, you know. And speaking of once more, Bruce Wilhelm that I mentioned earlier, Bruce was a collegiate wrestler, so he knew how to wrestle. And another one that played NFL football, Curly Culp, he was a NCAA national champion, uh, and he wrestled. And Steve Neal, who who was an NFL player, he beat Brock Lesnar uh, in in the NCAA's. So um, you know. In that in that regard, you have crossover, you know, wrestler and boxing uh, or uh, football. Uh, Bob Golick, Mike Golick, they wrestled at Notre Dame. They were Cleveland boys. They played, you know, Golick played for the Browns, played for the Raiders. Mike or Bob, uh, Benedictine High School. That's where they went. <laughs> and uh, or I'm pretty sure it was Benedictine, yeah. I remember driving past the Golick's house. They lived in, uh, it was Euclid, I guess. The, the, the parents' house because they had the Notre Dame, the, the, the fighting, the leprechaun painted on their garage door, uh, you know, which was, that's how you knew that's, that was Mr. and Mrs. Golick. You know, that's probably already when Bob was already playing NFL football. Bob was, you know, older than me. Well, I think they're both older than me, but um, yeah. And I'm, and I'm, you know, there's probably a lot of guys that, you know, at least wrestled. Hell here, uh, Howie Long was a, uh, <clears throat> some sort of collegiate boxing champion. A lot of people don't know that. Howie Long boxed from the Raiders. He's a Hall of Famer. Pretty interesting, you know. Yeah, I think with the, the way the schedule works in high school, usually a lot of 
or at least a, a decent amount of football players will wrestle in the winter. It's a lot Just, of. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. But, you know, they're good athletes, man. Can't look, there's a lot of great high school athletes that never went any further than high school. Right. Or college athletes that that was it. That was the, that was the, that was the limit of their career. Yet these were terrific, terrific athletes. And that we're just talking here, imagine all around the world, you know, the, the, the fine amount of athletes, you know, that are out there that, you know, we'll never know because they were regional champions at certain sports. You know, we tend to become kind of egocentric here and talk about football and, you know, you know, sports that pertain to us, but, you know, think of, you know, cricket or, 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 you know, soccer, as they call you know, football, they call it over there or rugby or, you know, Australian rules, football, or whatever, you know, local indigenous wrestling, um, things like that. There is plenty of sports that, you know, you got just tremendous athletes that, you know, are not marketed here because it's sports that, you know, aren't, aren't popular here or they don't have a, uh, an agent to market it, market them in America. So we tend to just focus on the stars that we know. And now and then you get crossovers, you know, Pele or, you know, Ronaldo or, uh, you know, other stars like that. And, um, you know, then, then you have tennis players, which, you know, that's a lot of skill. You know, I played a little tennis in high school, man. The only thing that kept me going was I was fast. I could run baseline to baseline, but I wasn't any good. That shit's, that's hard. You know, I give these people credit. <clears throat> I could never excel at tennis. Do you think wrestling is the oldest sport? Track and field, buddy. That's my opinion. Track is older than wrestling. I, I would say wrestling is the second oldest sport because, you know, the first thing probably cavemen had to do was run after things, okay? And, you know, that would make sense to me. Uh, and I'm not alone in that thinking. It's it's speculation. I don't know if we have any proof, but yeah, I would say wrestling is a, to me is the second oldest sport. I'm going to go with track, running, jumping, things like that. Who knows? And picking up girls, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> have you seen any of those cave women? I don't know. Uh, Wasn't Raquel Welch in a cave woman movie? Oh God. Yeah. Don't even go there. Cause she's free. If you're going to bring her up, my girl, Julie Newmar, who, hello, she's still alive. Both, both of them are alive. But I think Julie Newmar is single. Hi, I'm Tony. Um, yeah. <laughs> we need to get her on the show. Oh, please. Yeah. Yeah, she's in her 80s, and, you know, she can still probably fit in that Catwoman suit. You know, um, it's amazing. Uh, and Raquel Welch just got body frisked. Remember here, Joe, like three years ago at O'Hare? Uh, maybe a little bit more than three, three, four years ago was, was she liked it. You know, it was like, she made a fun out of it. You know, the, the TSA frisked her. <laughs> TSA guy saw his opportunity and he took it. She's, she, now she's married though, I think, but she's actually from Chicago. A lot of people don't know that maybe a suburb or something. You can look it up, but uh, yeah. Um, now there's some, when you're talking about pretty women there again, that's taste. You know, everybody has their own taste. But uh, there were there was many beautiful women through the years. All right, in a fight, Julie Newmar versus Raquel Welch. I win if I get the watch. <laughs> okay, I mean that's all I can tell you. Boy, don't start. This is a Sunday, you know. Don't do this. Yeah, that would be a good 
good. I think Julie's a few years older, but uh, she was a ballerina. She had 100, has 135 IQ. Yep. Um, but yeah, so guys, I guess it, that old clock on the wall is saying that we're doggone near out of time here, but this was a pretty good one. Um, enjoyed talking to you guys and anxiously look forward to seeing you guys next week. Yeah, Likewise. I think we covered a lot of ground and it was a good conversation for sure. I enjoyed it. It's always deeper than what you want to think about if you if you start digging. Too many people tend to try to make it simplistic or they try to uh you know sugarcoat certain things, but there every subject we talked about today takes a lifetime to master. It it really does. There's just no shortcuts. And unfortunately, we're in we're in a fast track world, man or they're trying to fast track everybody to stardom. And, you know, it's really a shame because in many instances, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential left on the table, you know, act in haste and repent and leisure kind of thing. You know, let's just hurry up and get this guy to the top or gal to the top when, um, you know, there's, it's, it's just, it's hard to work that way. You know, it, it really is, but yep. Good enough, man. Thank you, Nico, for being on the show. And again, as always, and thank thank you, Joe, for hanging out as always. Yeah, thank you, guys. All right, guys, have a good week. You too. You too.